This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. And this is a big part of post-Soviet life, I think, is this suppression. And by giving it images, I, I wanted to allow it to come forth out of the darkness, but I also wanted to give a sense of it being somewhat kept at bay. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Enigma. This is outreach staff member Anna Mudd, and today we have two guests. Julia Alexeyeva, doctoral candidate at Harvard's Department of Comparative Literature, who has just published a graphic memoir, Soviet Daughter, which tells the life story of her great-grandmother, as well as Julia's own coming of age after immigrating from Kiev to Chicago in 1992. We're also delighted to have with us comic scholar Dr. Hilary Shute, professor of English and Art and Design at Northeastern University, and author, among many other books, of Graphic Women, Life Narrative, and Contemporary Comics. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. So, Julia, your book tells the story of your great-grandmother Lola's life from her birth in Kiev in 1910 to, the de to her death in Chicago a century later. Can you start off just by giving our listeners a sense of just the sheer scope of events that she lived through and that you draw in this book? Absolutely. So my great-grandmother Lola was born in 1910 and died, as you said, in, in 2010 in Chicago. And her life pretty much encompasses the entire history of the Soviet Union. So through the, the book, you see things such as the Bolshevik Revolution, then the Civil War afterwards. You see um, the Stalinist purges in World War II, and then the death of Stalin and the thaw afterwards. So you really get a sense of the the effect that history had on one particular person. That's an incredible story. Um, and so I believe you told me that Hillary is the person who convinced you initially to incorporate your own life and relationship to Lola into the book. So could you two just talk about how that conversation went? Well, maybe Julia can say <laughs> more specifically since it's sort of a question for her. But I had the great pleasure of meeting Julia a number of years ago at a conference in Illinois at which she was presenting a paper and for which I was the keynote speaker. And I think I just always felt about this story, it was so interesting to me that you were also pursuing your PhD and that you had this enormous um, creative talent. And I, I didn't want you to feel like you had to choose one or the other. Um, and so I'm so glad that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that in fact you're doing, or, and soon you will have done both. Oh, thank you. That's really kind of you to say, because I've always felt very much in the middle of these two fields of academic and creative fields. I didn't want to make something overly academic, but I also, when I work on my academic work, I also want to make something readable. So it's always sort of hard to navigate the two. But I remember in the conversation that we had in November, so I had just created I think either one or two chapters, I think it was just one chapter. And I didn't plan it on including that much of my own narrative. I wanted it to be almost entirely her words, but translated. And it was you that said that actually what, what is particularly interesting to you are those moments where I talk about my own life or the more autobiographical moments. And I was a little I was a little hesitant to do that and there was like a bit of resistance. But then in the end I think those were the ones that drew people into the narrative. And they were they they ended up being very important for me to write as well. One of the things that I find so particularly compelling, this sense that um by putting yourself in the narrative along with Lola's narrative, you get to present how connected you felt and feel to her across these generations. 
uh, she's the GI generation and you're right. the millennial generation right. and they're two in between. And yet it's your two generations that feel really connected. Right. That was riveting. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So that's a great segue, actually, for talking about this relationship between comics and time. So, Hillary, I want to stay with you for a second. Um, so there are lots of different ways that people define comics, right? The combination of words and images, comics as sequential art. Um, can you talk a little bit about the idea of comics as time rendered as space and this unique relationship between time and comics? Sure. So um, thank you for that question. People who think a lot about comics and try to articulate what's happening narratively in comics often talk about comics as a medium in which time is turned into space. And so what that means at a basic narrative level is that conventionally in comics, um, one has moments of time that exist in, in frames or what are called panels. And that's how the narrative moves forward. Each frame is a moment in time. And in between, there's an empty space, which in the language of comics is called the gutter. And the reader projects causality from frame to frame in and across the space of the gutter. So you couldn't move them around and have the page mean the same thing. So um, one way to put this is that there's no reflow in comics the way there is with, say, prose, right? So Ulysses is Ulysses, no matter what um, font it appears in and trim size of the edition and so forth and so on. That is not the case with comics. This is why I've written about comics as um, compared to poetry. It's a spatially site-specific form. Okay, so that might have sounded a little pedantic about comics grammar, but the thing that's so interesting about this is that, as the comics theorist Scott McCloud says, um, comics actually has a sense of time that's much, much weirder than that. So one thing that can happen is that the, um, the different temporalities can blur, right? The past and the present. And to me, that's one of the most powerful techniques that comics has at its disposal for telling stories um, like the story that um, Julia just wrote about her experience and Lola's experience. It's a story that's really about the relationship of past to present. Um, so this is something that comics does and makes legible in a really powerful way. The intertwining of temporalities with the present tense. Yeah, and Julia, so you were just speaking about how you had always during your life felt this great connection to your great grandmother. But I'm just curious, in terms of your process, in terms of sort of literally intertwining your two histories and stories on the page, were there new sort of insights or ways of thinking about the ways that her history informs you that came to mind? I found the end of the book so moving because there's this real sense of sort of integration of sort of a new level of understanding how she's present in your life, even though she's not sort of physically with you anymore. Yeah, that's a great question. I think in the process of writing and drawing the book, and especially in drawing the book and in painting these pages and I really felt a sense of how connected our personalities were, uh, more so, even more so than we were as people. I found myself physically acting out moments where I had to draw her to, I mean, a lot, I think a lot of people, cartoonists do this where, you know, I didn't have a lot of a big budget at my disposal, obviously. So what I had to do was put a, uh, my, my laptop's webcam up and then just kind of like freeze frame, you know, and then like pose myself in various ways to get reference images for specific poses that I wanted to draw. And in that process of 
almost in becoming my great grandmother, it was, it was pretty moving and strange. And I felt, you know, that I was sort of drawing my body because that was the body that I was taking photographs of. And it was felt almost messed up in a way that I was like inhabiting her spirit in some way. But, um, but it was a lot of fun and made me, I guess, more emotionally involved in what she was saying as well, even more emotionally involved that I probably would have been Julia, that's so interesting. So, I mean, you mentioned that other cartoonists use the same sort of process, too. Um, have you heard at all about Alison Bechtel doing that? She poses her own body in a reference photograph for every body mm-hmm. in a frame that she draws. And and um, she's also talked, and, and this is so interesting to me, in the way you were just talking about that experience of inhabiting the physical postures of her parents in order to draw them. And in my view, it's this incredible kind of desire to put your own body into the past. Absolutely. Because I wanted, I also wanted to convey a sense of continuation through history. And, you know, I heard of her as always the spirited, ambitious and, and almost bossy person. And I wanted to inhabit <laughs> being that person because, you know, I, I, th- that would be a good person yeah, to inhabit. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> So it's like, a all right. model. Exactly. So I was like, all right, I'll become this, this optimistic go-getter for like a couple minutes a day. <laughs> yeah, Joe Sacco, the comics journalist, talks about this as well. The experience of posing as both the perpetrator and the victim in violent events he's depicting. Yeah, I write about this in my book, Disaster Drawn, that came yes. out last year. So he... He talks about it as inhabitation. Mm-hmm. That's the right. that's the word he uses, which is a word that comes up with a lot of cartoonists who are doing that. But um, especially in his last book, Footnotes in Gaza, or his last um, long book, um, he was talking about having to inhabit all of these corpses that he was drawing. Fascinating yeah. in a sort of opposite way from what you were talking about, which is this sort of sense of connection to a specific living person right although I was inhabiting a corpse right because my great-grandmother was dead at that time you know so there was a sense in which you know and most of the people that I drew had died you know so in one way or another so it was it was a sense of reanimation and almost puppetry Mm -hmm. you know and I feel like there are there are connections that could be made to weirdly enough to like puppetry along with all of these other oh I think there are a lot yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good connection (laughs) continuing on some of these themes of this uh, rendering legible and visible so your book is based on a memoir that your great-grandmother wrote but instructed your family not to read until after her death and throughout your own story there are all these many examples of things being kept hidden right so when you immigrate as refugees your mother asks you not to tell anyone that you're Jewish uh, not to tell Lola about your treatment for thyroid cancer that likely resulted from the Chernobyl disaster. And can you talk about what it was like to literally represent these things that had this history of hiddenness through comics and how that was maybe a very different experience than if you were just writing a prose memoir? Right. That was definitely a choice that I, a lot of, there were a lot of choices that I had to make in terms of representing either traumatic experiences or very difficult world events like the Holocaust. Um, because I tend to be rather critical of um, either in film or animation or, or literature or comics when there's too much representation that is explicitly kind of exaggerated violence or a, a violence that doesn't turn away when perhaps what is more interesting is the fact that it is hidden. But I think this has a lot to do with Soviet culture. So post-Soviet immigrants or people from the Soviet Union who live wherever in the world um, tend to repress a lot of their lives tend to not talk about things like the war 
unless it was like, oh, glory days where I defeated the Nazis and it was wonderful. But so much of family life in these kind of environments is we don't we do not talk about these things. They are swiped under the rug, but it is assumed. So there's a sense of communal kind of assumption of trauma without it being forthright. So her even in my great grandmother's memoirs she when she talks about these kind of traumatic events she doesn't mull over them in a kind of american way where you think about your feelings and it's wonderful (laughs) and you go to a therapist and it's awesome but instead you know there's a lot of this happened and then this happened and this happened and well i had to go on i couldn't really think about it too hard so that was really how she was and that was how her voice was conveyed so i had to i felt like i had to continue conveying this sense of unrepresentation or like a lack of explicit representation and because although she gave examples of these events the way that she described it was so different I think than most Americans would describe these kind of things and in reactions to the book I've I've had a lot of American readers tell me oh this is great but didn't she think about these things had this must have been so difficult for her you know has she written or told you about how this affected her life and she must have been traumatized but the truth is that she didn't and that they don't. And this is and this is a big part of post-Soviet life, I think, is this repression. Um, and by giving it images, I, I wanted to allow it to come forth out of the darkness. But I also wanted to give a sense of it being somewhat kept at bay. So all of this that Julia has been talking about is part of this larger history, right, that you centrally write about in Graphic Women. And I'm wondering for our listeners who may not be familiar with any of those works, if you can just talk a little bit about that legacy that Julia's work is in conversation with about this sort of, as as you frame it, radical practice of women comics creators um, sort of rendering themselves visible on the page and representing their stories. Sure. Um, So... In my book, Graphic Women, which came out in 2010, part of what I was trying to do was um, name and establish a tradition that that hadn't been written about much before as a tradition. So it was it was really, at least in the U.S., in the early 70s, in the underground comics movement in which comics were um, produced and distributed independently outside of the mainstream commercial comics industry that we really see women's stories coming forward. So um, in America, the first autobiographical comic story by a woman comes out in 1972. It's by Aileen Kaminsky-Crum. This work really broke something open, and um, there's been a really rich tradition of memoirs, period, but particularly memoirs by women in its wake. So um, in Graphic Women, I write about Aileen Kaminsky-Crum. I write about Phoebe Gluckner. I write about Marjan Satrapi, whose work Persepolis is, I think, maybe perhaps structurally closest to Julia's in being a personal memoir of coming of age that is also tracking events during a war, which is the Iran-Iraq War. Um, And I write about um, Alison Bechtel and Linda Berry. So those, to me, are sort of five of the most important figures. But again, I published this book in 2010, and since this book has come out, so many amazing women cartoonists have come out with fantastic 
memoirs, including Julia. So, you know, this is um, something I, I open with in the introduction to my book. But, you know, when I was a grad student working <laughs> on my PhD about comics um, back in the early 2000s, I remember I just about fell over in the cafe in Brooklyn where I was having my Sunday morning coffee and reading the paper. The cover of the New York Times magazine was a cover story about comics. And it was called How Cool is Comics Lit? And I just sort of felt like, wow, I got scooped by the New York <laughs> Times Magazine. This is what my dissertation is about. Except that I opened the story and it profiled not one single woman. And this was in 2004. And the the writer, a very esteemed, well-known writer of this piece, said, the graphic novel is a man's world by and large. That was in 2004. Five years later, there is no possible way he could have said that. Um, Marjan Satrapi's Persepolis was an international bestseller. She herself adapted it to be a film that was highly acclaimed. It was um, France's um, entry for um, Best Foreign Film at the Oscars um, in 2005. Alison Bechtel's book became a bestseller. It was on the New York Times um, bestseller list, which sort of no graphic novel since Mouse in the 90s had been. So it just shifted up making legible that this history had always been there. But I especially love in Graphic Women when you talk about Persepolis, how you talk about how the style can only be that way. And it is that way, that, that stark black and white expressionist style for a reason. And it made me really think about how I was using imagery and how every, all the, all the, the specific style that I'm using has a purpose and references a specific type of thing. Yeah, I, th I think that people who aren't used to thinking about style and the mm -hmm. work of line in comics sometimes think that style is just the default ability right. of the cartoonist, whereas in fact it's a narrative choice. That, that This is definitely something I was thinking about because I was going through so many, so many different styles of drawing before figuring out that what I wanted was a kind of blurry photographic painterly quality that um, could not be conveyed if I had just done sort of stark black and white, more explicitly cartoonish style. So I think every story requires, as you say, in graphic women, right, kind of necessitates its own form. Yeah. I think on a, on a level of technique, since we we're talking about comics and what the form of comics affords, when you were <laughs> talking about the text, they're, they're not only these sort of proliferated bodies, which I find so fascinating about um, something comics can do sort of put bodies that exist in different moments in time together in one frame, as I was saying before, but also they're sort of floating text in, in a pretty distinct cursive right. all around the bodies sort of as they're growing. And what the effect is for a reader, which I found really fascinating is that it seems like these sort of sentiments that, that come up in the text are something that stick with the protagonist as she grows up. Right. So the sort of fears or the threats um, that are articulated stick with her, her whole childhood. And that's what the effect of having the floating text and the growing bodies is for a reader. Yeah, exactly. And or at least for this reader. <laughs> no, no, I think that was what I wanted to convey too, because there's also another page in a different interlude where I use the same kind of cursive style when talking about my relation to Jewishness. And there's a kind of another sort of disembodied, text where you know that someone is saying this and you don't really know necessarily who well you have an idea but it's it was 
that the like the, the the cursive was exclaiming a fear that other people would find out I was Jewish. And so this all of these kind of cursive disembodied moments sort of stick with the character slash me sort of throughout throughout the book. And so it becomes a kind of um, integrated thought, like an ego or super ego or something. There, there's a pretty nerdy academic reason why I chose each of those hands or each of those um, types of fonts, I guess, um, because the the cursive, I tried to approach the standard Russian cursive. I don't know if, if you, uh, people who have, who have encountered learning Russian might know this, but Russian script is the same regardless of who's, who writes it. Everyone's handwriting is pretty much exactly the same because handwriting is so important for distinguishing the different letters um, in, in, in Cyrillic. So basically there's a certain generation of people that grew up in the Soviet Union, especially women, that every single person's handwriting is exactly the same. And it used to really creep me out as a child. <laughs> you know, when you're in the States and I would, would put like, you know, as a fourth grader, dot my eyes with hearts and whatever and really try Oh, yeah, to... I still do that. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. No, but there's a sense that I have to express my individuality through my handwriting. At least that's what I was thinking or overthinking when I was in fourth grade. But here's this, like, generation of people with this exact same handwriting. So I wanted to approach that by doing an English version of that same exact type of cursive. Um, so because there are these kind of ideas this I don't think this is just my own family I've heard that about this kind of stuff in other families as well there's just a generational shift that happens and these kind of things are pretty ubiquitous um, at least in the experiences that my friends have had as well last thing I want to ask a little bit about is um, just space and place so there's an immigration story that's central to this narrative, right? This moving um, from Kiev to Chicago. But because the texts move back and forth in time, you also end up moving sort of back and forth in space, right? The sort of immigration happens in reverse and over and over again. Um, so I just wanted to ask you a bit about, um, about representing those spaces. And just on a technical level, were you working from photographs? Had you traveled to any of these places? I mean, the rendering of spaces is also quite moving throughout it. Um, and again, a similar question, just are there any sort of insights or surprises about your relationship um, to that, those locations that sort of came up through that process? Yeah, um, I did work a lot from historical photographs and reference images, um, especially in the first chapters where there was so little um, photographic representation. Then I just spent the, that first summer working on the book in the um, Harold Washington Library in Chicago. <laughs> every page uses at least 10 to 15 photographs. Um, so everything from trying to figure out how long skirts were in a certain era, even those kind of details, I wanted to look up and see, okay, what kind of shoes did people wear? What were the streets like? Were there horse-drawn carriages at this time still? You know, these are things that I try to amalgamate sort of through looking at all of these different reference images. I have to say that the bulk of the images still come from family photographs. So I had something like 400 scans of photos that I just went into my grandparents' photo albums and spent days and days just scanning them and scanning them um, and rescanning them because they didn't turn out well, you know. And so there was this you know, rummaging through my grandparents' closets and, and trying to get more photographs and trying to ask, who was this person? What did they look like? So even the faces of these characters, like my great-grandmother's siblings, I would ask my grandmother, what color hair did she have? How, what, what did her face look like? Do you have any photographs of her older? You know, so all of these things, I try to get as much information 
as much information as I possibly could. So you get kind of crazy immersed in this (laughs) kind of universe Mm -hmm. where you think about, did they have wavy hair? Do they have curly hair? You kind of makes you go nuts. But um, I have a lot of memories of the former Soviet Union, but they were not memories that would be easily found in photographs. You know, obviously a child doesn't really care about monuments. They care about like going to the park or seeing a dog (laughs) that they thought was really cute, you know, (laughs) or like, yeah, the trees and like buildings that are more associated with home. So these things I have a memory of. And I wanted to convey that sense of hominess um, when talking about the, my great grandmother's sort of early twenties or late teen years, the sense of when, when things kind of, stabilized for a bit and she was like partying and and um had all these affairs and boyfriends and she just had lots of fun and happened to have a child okay okay you know but um the the sense of a livable space as opposed to a space of pure trauma I wanted to convey because for me it wasn't a necessarily a place of trauma like I have a memory of waiting in line for milk for two hours but I just like chatted with people in the line and like kind of hung out and was like, all right, this is a thing that I do as a four-year-old apparently, but, or a two-year-old, but this is, you know, I wanted to give a sense of this is, this was a place that real people lived in. Um, and that it was rather livable, you know, for at least some time before the kind of horrible things emerged again. But that was the sense that I wanted to get out of the, the kind of twenties, thirties in the book. I think it's also particularly hard maybe for American readers to think that, okay, this was a country that was one-sixth of the world. Like, that's a crazy, enormous space, you know? So, so much of the reason for for drawing the book was to give people that might not have necessarily um, good background in Soviet history a sense of having lived there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that part of that has to do with the space and the enormity of this, of the vastness of the country, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope some of our listeners will be inspired to bring this medium into their teaching and their learning and just their experience of the region. Um, well, both of you, your work is just stunning um, and so remarkable to encounter. So thank you both so much for this conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you. It's been great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. That's, this has been wonderful. Mm-hmm.